Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. The countdown until Election Day continues, uh, now less than two weeks to go. Early voting, of course, continues. And so does our series of conversations with Iowa congressional candidates. All of Iowa's major party congressional and gubernatorial candidates have been invited to share their views here on River to River. Earlier today, I spoke with Iowa's only member of Congress from the Democratic Party, U.S. Representative Cindy Axney has served two terms for Iowa's 3rd District. She now faces uh, Republican challenger, State Senator Zach Nunn. We should note that Zach Nunn has declined our invitation to share his views here on River to River. This race is seen as one of the most competitive House races in the nation. Congresswoman Axney, welcome back to our program. Well, so glad to be here. It's always a pleasure. Let's start with the economy, if we could. The The latest GDP report released this morning shows the economy expanding at an annual rate of 2.6%, even though there are many signs to point to a slowdown, uh, inflation continuing to eat away at our spending power, and then also uh, new news today, mortgage rates topping 7% this week. That's the highest level in 20 years. Uh, what can you do in Congress to provide economic relief to working families? Well, that's a very good question and one that we've been working on uh, literally since I got into this job. You know, my whole goal has been to put more money in Iowans' pockets, uh, level the playing field for Iowa so we can get ahead and give our families more opportunity. Uh, So for my terms in Congress, I've been doing that. But over the last several years, of course, with COVID and then uh, supply chain disruptions as a result of an international pandemic, which led to those supply chain disruptions, we've been actively working on making sure that those goods are uh, available for Iowans. And of course, that we are controlling uh, prices at the pumps and uh, certainly for people's pocketbooks. So for instance, most recently, the Inflation Reduction Act, we just signed that into law. This will put money right back in Iowans' pockets. For our older Iowans on Medicare, uh, $2,000 a month out-of-pocket expense uh, for their, sorry, for the year uh, for their prescription drugs automatically been same, saves them $1,000 because our average is $3,000 a year here uh, for those prescription drugs. We're lowering the cost of insulin to $35 a month. Uh, this in and of itself will save hundreds of dollars for Iowans right out of the gate. And then for the next four years, we'll be adding different prescription drugs onto the negotiated prices and lowering the cost of dozens of other most expensive, most used drugs in Medicare. Through the Inflation Reduction Act, we also are investing in clean energy. And that clean energy investment is going to result in a couple hundred dollars of savings in Iowans' pockets by producing energy in our country, but by also being able to use tax incentives to weatherize your own home. So if you want to get those new uh, windows put in, uh, that uh, water heater, uh, solar panels, uh, you can get paid uh, to do that and then lower your energy prices as a result of it. These two things are direct funds back into people's pockets and quite honestly address the two big issues that we see gouging uh, from big corporations, that's big pharma and uh, fossil fuel companies. And so we are actively addressing those two areas because they're basically two of the companies that have tried to gouge Americans for far too long 
And certainly during COVID did that as well. It's why we've seen, we, we saw gas prices so high for a period of time until we as Congress, and I led a letter and then the president pushed this as well, um, we were able to get those big oil companies to start producing at pre-COVID levels. They've been strapping Americans and Iowans to higher prices so they can put more money back in shareholders' pockets. So it's a couple of things we got to do here, Ben. First, we've got to ensure that those businesses that work for our country, that benefit greatly uh, from our country, like those uh, big oil companies, that they produce and actually get the goods into Americans' uh, tanks without strapping us from paying more so they can put more money into their shareholders' pockets. So we've done that. But we've also put legislation into place that does reduce people's costs. Finally, I'd like to say, um, as part of my seven-point supply chain agenda, we have passed over this last year the Ocean Shipping Reform Act, which helped move our goods out of port, and that fixed that issue of goods not leaving this country. We've worked with our systems to ensure that products are moving uh, you know, to a uh, marketplace. Uh, I have been out with Secretary Vilsack most recently, just this past week, uh, giving a grant to a local agriculture production company uh, for their crystallized eggs products. We're trying to produce things closer to home now. Just last year, I was out last fall with Secretary Vilsack doing a groundbreaking uh, for a new uh, beef uh, processing plant here in Iowa. We're bringing the processing back home. That's going to lower prices for folks. It's going to get our goods to market uh, and also give Americans better choices. So we're actively working on a lot of ways to lower prices for folks um, and keep those, uh, you know, th those issues intact. I just want to also point out that from the countries that, you know, we all experienced COVID, America is sitting in a really good spot compared to a lot of other countries because of the work that we've done to keep the economy going. Um, and now we've got to continue to just do what, what we can do to make sure that it moves in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned the shareholders and, and big corporations. Uh, let me ask you about this, because I know it's the subject of Republican attack ads on you. And, and uh, let's go to the, the factual basis of a New York Times report that you are uh, one of 97 members of Congress who bought or sold stocks, bonds or other financial assets that intersected with your congressional work or reported similar transactions by their spouse, I'm reading this as a quote, or a dependent child. This is a subject, as I said, is a Republican attack ads that uh, our listeners have, uh, many have, have no doubt seen. What do you say to voters who think this is an example of uh, a person in power flaunting the rules? Well, what I say is that the Republicans have crafted a complete lie about my finances, and maybe folks want to follow me around in my 11-year-old Buick while I shop at Aldi. Uh, so <laughs> quite honestly, if I'm taking advantage of any system, I'm doing a pretty bad job at it. Um, and as a matter of fact, I find it almost uh, it's so disingenuous. And I'll be honest, news news today really needs to do a little bit more work. Um, the New York Times, just because I sit on a committee uh, that oversees financial services comp uh, companies in some ways doesn't mean that I'm benefiting off of that. And as a matter of fact, um, I must be really doing a bad job because I'm the one who grilled the Wells Fargo CEO so badly that he retired, left the company three weeks later, a few years ago, when I found out the communications workers there uh, were training other folks in other countries for jobs that were outsourced. Uh, they didn't get the trade adjustment assistance they needed. So in a hearing against the company that the false lie of the Republicans have pointed out says I'm actually benefiting from, I grilled the CEO to the level point where they, I forced the company 
to pay that trade adjustment assistance to those workers, hundreds of workers, and the CEO left. I think I'm doing my job. You know, the big issue is uh, false narratives around this that were created to begin with by the Republican Party um, that was, uh, you know, saying that I was doing something wrong. I didn't fill out some what are called PTR, uh, personal transaction reports, because my stocks are completely purchased, executed, managed by a third party company. They're in retirement accounts. <laughs> in retirement accounts, folks, let me repeat that, and in kids' 529 college savings account. So I don't control these. And the sad thing is, is that, you know, anymore, um, you could be a good person who's following all the rules, which I am. But if uh, news, um, to be honest, IPR was the first one who reported this in Iowa without doing some facts a year ago, fact checking. So um, you know, it's real easy for folks to file complaints against people in Congress. Anybody can do it, quite honestly. Gets to the OCE, it, it creates a public complaint. That's what happened to me. I was completely uh, dismissed by the Office of Congressional Ethics. And so everything that they're saying has been completely made up from the Republican side to force me to possibly lose an election because it's one of the top four seats in the country. I've been completely exonerated by the bipartisan ethics committees, and I don't trade, execute, or purchase my stocks. So, you know, that's the full answer. And honestly, I'm getting real tired of people making up uh, stories about me uh, when my husband and I don't even remotely come close to having that kind of funding. Representative Axley, let's move on to another big issue on voters' minds. Um, President Biden has vowed to codify uh, row if more Democrats are elected to Congress, uh, if uh, Democrats have control of Congress. Uh, tell us about the abortion protections you have supported and would support in the future at a federal level. Yes. Well, as a matter of fact, what the president is talking about is codifying uh, the piece of legislation that we voted on this past uh, July, which was the Women's Health Protection Act, uh, which would essentially codify Roe v. Wade. This couldn't be done any sooner. Um, obviously, we're seeing the impacts of the Supreme Court decision uh, across the country. Uh, young girls being forced uh, to go out of state uh, to get an abortion when they were raped. Um, obviously, our governor is itching to bring a six-week uh, fetal heartbeat bill here and get that passed into law. Um, all I know is that in the middle of the summer, our girls woke up with less, less rights than our sons. Um, you know, that's just not the country that we live in. Obviously, I support a woman's right to choose. This should be between herself and her doctor and her family. That's it. Um, unfortunately, my opponent and the Republicans would like to see a national, national ban. So we've got to push back against this. Yeah, while most Iowans support legal abortion, according to polls, the, the idea of late-term abortion is, is more controversial. So where do you draw the line? What, is the, what abortion restrictions would you support? Listen, I want us to get back to Roe v. Wade um, and ensure that we're following what was the, the law of the land. Um, you know, obviously, I want to clarify another false narrative by the Republicans that says that, you know, that Democrats want uh, women to have babies and then kill them. That's absolutely not happening. We know that uh, any late term abortions are when the mother's life is in danger. Uh, and it's a very disingenuous uh, and also, uh, you know, misleading 
uh, statement that the Republicans are making. Let's talk a little bit about climate change, the environment and energy and uh, Iowa's biofuel industry. How does Iowa's biofuel industry and and biofuel across the, the country fit into carbon reduction goals necessary to stem climate change? Listen, we've got an opportunity here uh, for our state and for this country uh, to really use biofuels in a way that will benefit our imprint uh, on our environment. And of course, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and fight back against the the climate uh, issues that we're facing. Uh, Right now, uh, I'm pushing that agenda by helping us uh, get uh, clean ethanol out to uh, other states across this country with my infrastructure build out. Um, we are actively working on uh, uh, biofuels for aviation fuel. That's going to be a huge market uh, for it. Uh, and of course, continuing to focus on uh, biodiesel. So right now, what we've got uh, for myself as chair of the Biofuels Caucus, and of course, with this administration, is uh, wanting to look at all of our tools, use every tool in our toolbox. And we've got uh, clean fuel right now. We should be using more of it than we should be then fossil fuels. Absolutely. Uh, we could be blending and using a lot more of the fuel that we create here. Uh, so we're going to continue to push for that agenda. Uh, the president's in support of it. The administration's in support of it. Uh, and I think we'll continue to see an industry that, that will grow. Uh, further, with the biofuels industry, you know, this can be anything uh, from switchgrass uh, to white pine. Doesn't just have to be soy and uh, corn in, in Iowa. There's an opportunity around this country uh, to use our natural resources uh, for the betterment of our environment. And I, I hope that we will continue to look for those opportunities around the country. Cindy Axney, uh, my conversation with Representative Axney uh, recorded uh, earlier today. Um, let's continue, Representative Axney, with a question put on Facebook um, by one of our listeners. Uh, Matt wants your take on the January 6th committee and what we can learn from it as a nation. And I'll just mention here, too, that I believe your Republican opponent has said the committee has spent excessive time and resources pushing a partisan agenda. Yeah, Matt, thank you for that question, because I'll be honest, I think that um, far too often uh, since the insurrection, uh, we haven't paid enough attention to the issue. Uh, And yes, my opponent um, has downplayed it. He's also been endorsed by President Trump and President and uh, uh, House Leader McCarthy, uh, Minority Leader. These are folks um, who obviously push the big lie. Um, He's also uh, said that... um, that if, it, if middle Americans could just walk onto the House floor, uh, then those Capitol Police officers uh, should probably aren't doing their do- job right. What, a, what an affront to our Capitol Police officers, friends of mine like Harry Dunn, who protected people, including the vice president, a Republican, um, during the insurrection. Um, we need folks out there who understand the severity of an attack uh, on, this, on the very institution uh, that is known for democracy, um, our free and fair elections are literally the cornerstone of this country, of the republic that we believe in, of the democratic values that, that we, we, we push. So we've got to get to the bottom of how this uh, was all arranged, uh, the insurrection on the 6th. We certainly need to know who's involved. Um, we have somebody who's still interested in becoming president, um, who's key uh, to this um, this committee's work. Uh, so we need to continue down the vein. This is about keeping our country safe. 
Nobody's above the law, not even a president. Um, and this is tr truly about our country and its democracy. If we have elected officials who don't want to look into uprising against our free and fair elections, and the first time in this country that we didn't pass on uh, the torch of the presidency uh, in a civil way, uh, I, I think we would be doing our country a disservice. And I think any elected official who glosses over this uh, isn't really quite honest, worthy of the position to serve. Mm -hmm. The past few weeks have seen a significant escalation in the war in Ukraine. Also in our news, the threat of so-called dirty bombs, really horrifying scenarios, um, the spread of nuclear ra radiation with a dirty bomb or the use of tactical nuclear weapons. At the same time, for the second time in a week, members of Congress have signaled a potential shift in America's policy toward Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We had last week uh, the uh, GOP minority leader say that the GOP-controlled uh, GOP Congress next year might withhold funding from Ukraine. Then Monday of this week, in your party, 30, 30 liberal House uh, Democrats called on President Biden to engage in direct diplomacy with Russia. That drew a harsh backlash and a retraction. Uh, Senator, uh, Representative Axney, how committed are you to providing Ukraine whatever it takes uh, to back its uh, win back its territory. Well, I'm I'm committed uh, to to Ukraine and supporting their needs. And and um, let me make sure that uh, folks know that uh, those folks in the Progressive Caucus, in no way, shape, or form, uh, who wrote that letter, reflect the Democratic Caucus. Uh, I also know that they retracted it uh, as well. So you know where I sit on this is where I've always sat, which is uh, we need to continue to support the people of Ukraine. Um, you know, I've been there uh, when uh, the president's wife uh, visited with Congress. The stories, um, the heartfelt uh, way she represented the needs of the people there, uh, heartbreaking. You know, I'm a mom. Um, children are dying. Families are, are dying. Communities are being torn apart. Uh, these are things that, uh, you know, should not be happening. And um, Russia, uh, as an aggressor, um, you know, is continuing to push um, their power on other countries. And we, you know, we've got to continue to support Ukraine um, with the funding that they need, um, oversight of those funds to ensure that they're getting uh, to the right places and that the dollars aren't being wasted um, and continue with the things that we've done well, which are, have been the sanctions that have left Russia in a more difficult position. Uh, so that's where I sit in the fact that we need to continue to support Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Here's a, another Facebook question in the couple remaining minutes we have from Joseph. Uh, Joseph writes, I have seen at least two Republican attack ads accusing Congresswoman Axney of vacationing in France and voting by proxy during the pandemic. Please ask her to clear this up and explain. Well, thank you for that. Uh, so basically, we have August um, in our congressional calendar uh, which is the only month where we don't have uh, any votes in Washington, okay? It's the uh, time where you can be back in your district and where you can also take a vacation or something with your family. That's all you got, that time. Uh, between that uh, and the fact that my two sons uh, went off uh, to college, you know, the third week of August, I had a real short range to get something in there. This trip was planned months in advance. Uh, paid four months in advance for our 28th wedding anniversary and our kids' graduation presents. Uh, and so it was fully planned when we were out of session. And then 
what happened was Schumer and Manchin, if you recall, uh, got their act together and came forward uh, with the Inflation Reduction Act that we'd voted on uh, almost a year prior. Almost a year prior. Uh, and then the leader of the House decided to call a vote. Well, I couldn't make it. Uh, along with almost 170 other colleagues in the House who also voted uh, proxy. Uh, and so there you have it, uh, an unscheduled vote during time where we weren't even supposed to be there, uh, a, a vote that came up uh, that the leader decided to hold um, on that day. Uh, about 175 people couldn't even make it in uh, and proxied, and I was one of them. Once again, they are taking this out of context. Marionette Miller-Meeks, the Republican from District uh, 2 over here, she voted proxy. These folks didn't have COVID. It was a vote that people weren't aware was coming up. And if you're not you know, strategically located to DC, it's sometimes tough to get there on last minute votes like this. We have just two minutes left with Representative Cindy Axney. Uh, let's just uh, end with this. If you are reelected to your third term, Congresswoman Axney, and the Democrats maintain control of the U.S. House, what would be your highest priorities? Yes. Well, I humbly ask for everybody to uh, vote for me and send me back to Washington for uh, a third term. You know, I've really noticed that in this job, in particular with Iowa, we have to have the loudest, proudest voices out there. When we're competing against states that have 40 representatives or 35, you really have to do, a, a, you know, a, a ton of work to bring home what we need here. And I've never shied away from that. As a matter of fact, I've been delivering for the state for four years, and I'm very proud of that and happy to do so. So I ask for everybody's vote. First thing that we've got to get done because too many um, of Americans' lives are now at risk is to codify Roe v. Wade by having the Women's Health Protection Act passed. Uh, secondly, we've got to make sure that we uh, pass what's called HR1. It's a sweeping bill on ethics in Congress, money out of politics, uh, and voting rights. Half the troubles that we see in this country right now uh, is because of gerrymandering, uh, not having elected officials who the people would want to pick because of that, uh, and by suppression of voting rights. It's also greatly influenced by outside dark money. You just asked me about a couple of ads that are running. That's all outside dark money, outside dark money lying about me. So what we have here are uh, incidences that between the money and the voting rights that literally shape this country's fabric of elected officials. Uh, it shapes our democracy, and so we've got to get money out of politics. Those would be my uh, two biggest things, voting rights, money out of politics, women's reproductive health. Very good. We've run out of time. Thank you very much for this conversation. Recorded earlier today, uh, Representative Cindy Axney of Iowa's 3rd District. Thank you very much, uh, Congresswoman Axney. Thank you, Ben. Appreciate it. Coming up after a short break, a live conversation with Democratic candidate for Governor Deidre DeGere. That's when we return. I'm Ben Kiefer. It's River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. Support for IPR comes from Des Moines Metro Opera, whose 2024 season features The Barber of Seville, Zalame, Peleus and Melisande, and American Apollo, June 28th through July 21st. Tickets available now at DesMoinesMetroOpera.org. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. 
There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. And we're back with more of River to River from Iowa Public Radio News. I'm Ben Kiefer. My guest this half hour live is the Democratic candidate for Iowa Governor Deidre DeGier. DeGier is an activist, a small business owner. She was the nominee for the Secretary of State of Iowa in 2018. Born in Mississippi, raised in Oklahoma, moved to Iowa to attend Drake University in 2020. She worked as the Iowa campaign chair for Kamala Harris's presidential campaign. If elected, DeGier would become Iowa's first black governor. We should note incumbent Republican Governor Kim Reynolds has not responded to our invitation to be on this program. Deidre DeGier, welcome to uh, River to River. Hi, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. Pleasure to have you on the program. Uh, let's start off with briefly uh, tell our listeners what would be your top priorities as governor. Well, you know, my my first and foremost top priority is one that is an incredible priority for Iowans across the state. And this is coming from the vast number of conversations that I've had with Iowans, including just the work that I've done um, as a professional working to strengthen our economies, um, especially in the central Iowa area, and that's funding our education system. Uh, we know that this is a state that has prided itself in the past and really showing strength not only within the state but across this country. We were once ranked number one in education. Now we're 18, 19, 20 on the list, depending upon the list that you look at. Um, and we know as Iowans that's not where we belong, but it's less about the ranking. The ranking was just the evidence um, of us giving our students the best opportunity that they possibly could. Uh, to not only compete with their peers, but compete with any student in this world. And the challenge that we have right now is that the current governor does not believe in that path to victory anymore. And we see that with the constant underfunding of education, defunding of our systems, and really just perpetuating a crisis right before our eyes. And so that is fundamentally where I want to start because that's fundamental to who we are as Iowa. Mm -hmm. Governor Reynolds has pushed for legislation that would allow parents to use state funding to transition their children from public schools to private schools or homeschooling. Mm -hmm. It's been controversial. You know that, of course, including Mm -hmm. with members of the governor's own party. It's failed in the Iowa House of Representatives both years. Do you support the idea of allowing parents to use state funding to access private school education? So here's here's where we are right now. Um, we know that more than 100% of our, or not more than 100, but that 100% of our students need the unyielding commitment of our current governor. We had schools that started this August that didn't have science teachers, that didn't have math teachers or English teachers, and that poses an incredible challenge when we talk about truly preparing our students for a limitless future. And, and this is what our, our current governor knew even back during session. And rather than have the fortitude to really help figure out how we were going to, uh, to, to move uh, our districts forward, or even giving them the $300 million in, in um, a budget infusion to, to levels that the governor just decided to take or suggest that we take $55 million of taxpayer money to only fund 2% of our students. And, and I, I, I think that that is an incredible challenge, not only to the fact that we strongly believe that public dollars go into public schools, but more importantly, that our entire system needs help. And, and that, that bill was just evidence of the fact that she is unwilling 
to move all of our systems forward. And it's very synonymous with how her and her predecessor treated our healthcare system, very synonymous with how they have treated our mental health care system. It's a point of strength to acknowledge, you know, the, the room for growth and opportunities for growth. Um, but what we're seeing now with this current leadership is, is not to invest in our systems and to strengthen them, but to pass it along to private industry to deal with that. And when we look at the state of our healthcare and mental health care system today, we know that we don't want our education system to look like that tomorrow. Now, now, Republicans in power in the legislature and in the governor's office have increased school funding each year, although those increases have not kept pace with inflation. Now, Governor Reynolds says the money, money shouldn't be the barometer of how well an education system is working. What is your barometer, Deidre DeGier, for how well our system should be working? You know, that's probably a statement that I would agree upon. Money should not be a barometer. The performance of our students should be a barometer. You know, those resources, money is what adds value to give us the opportunity to, to, to not only level set, but to also increase the capacity of what our students have the ability to do. We see our third grade reading scores taking dramatic increases. From 2015 to now, they've been cut in half. Uh, for all of our students across the state, and we see even disproportionate impact uh, to our communities of color. And so when we see our third-grade reading scores dropping, that is an indicator for us not the amount of jobs we're going to fill in the state, but the number of prison beds that we're going to fill. And and when our employers need to fill 81,000 jobs in the state, you would think that our governor would be in alignment and preparing our students for that type of future to take on those jobs. But instead, she's preparing them for a future that's pipelined to prison, and that's something that we know is not good for us in this state. There's other barometers that exist, but performance is necessary, and we're not setting our students up to perform. So her record number of dollars that she's committed is not good enough for the sake of what our students need in this state. Let's shift briefly to higher education while we're on the topic. Uh, State funding for higher education has been declining over time. Uh, Universities have been raising tuition in response. Governor Reynolds recently joined a lawsuit to stop President Joe Biden from canceling student debt loan for an estimated 400,000 Iowans. Uh, I I wonder... um, Is student debt relief a fair way to provide economic relief, given that not everyone goes to college or incurs debt when they do? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and mind you that economic relief does not have a one-size-fits-all approach. Now, while the president is working to uh, decrease um, the burden that people have as it relates to student loans, the state has to do its due diligence in ensuring that there is a pathway for people to actually take on Uh, college um, as an option for them and do it in an affordable way. We have to make sure when we're talking about funding education that it's not just K through 12. It's our post-secondary as well, which is inclusive of our our, our community colleges across the state and our region. Mm -hmm. Uh, we, We need teachers. We need nurses. We need skilled workers. We need skilled labor. And if we don't invest in education, we can't expect that we're going to get people in those jobs. The unfortunate part about it, again, Our governor had an opportunity to create stronger pathways for people to get educated and people to access those jobs. And instead of having the fortitude to do that, she decides to present a restrictive policy, turning uh, the employment week window from 26 weeks uh, to 12 weeks. Uh, We know we need to to increase our child care providers in this state. We've lost nearly 40% of our child care providers over the last two and a half years. 
You know, we, we, we've got grandparents watching their children right now or watching their grandkids right now. Uh, we've got families staying at home because they either can't afford daycare or they can't access it. And so there are a number of ways that, that we can make sure we're creating opportunities for people to be successful. But, again, it's no one-size-fits-all approach. And, unfortunately, the governor's idea that, you know, this tax relief um, is going to be bad for Iowans is, is nothing but uh, a failure to acknowledge that this is an opportunity to just lift the burden for some people, more than 400,000 Iowans that benefit uh, from this, that they so choose to, to go through the process. And the vast majority of those islands, $20,000 is on a scrape in, a, in the bucket for the amount of student loans that they have. My guest this half hour, Democratic candidate for uh, Iowa Governor Deidre DeGier. Let's talk about um, another big uh, issue here, uh, abortion. In 2018, Governor Reynolds signed a law to ban abortions after about six weeks of pregnancy. At the time, it was the most restrictive abortion law in the country. Now, a court struck that down, but the governor has formally asked a state court to reinstate the law now that state and federal precedents protecting abortion rights have been overturned. Uh, If it goes into effect, uh, the law would include exceptions for rape, incest, fetal abnormalities, and to protect the life of the mother. if the court allows the law to go into effect, it becomes state law, uh, regardless of mm-hmm. whether you are in the governor's office or not. If if you are governor, what would you do in that scenario? Yeah, we, we have to make sure that we are lifting up women and creating opportunities for them to be healthy and whole every step of the way. And so we've got to find more legislation that's going to send us down the road of codifying grow in this state because the vast majority of Iowans believe in a woman's right to choose. And that was settled law that, again, Iowans agreed upon. And and so we want that to be reflected on the books. This current law, the six-week abortion, and it's just way too extreme. And we're hearing Republicans talk about it. We're hearing Democrats talk about independents, libertarians. It's just too extreme. Um, And it's too, it's not only is it extreme, from my vantage point, it's undemocratic because we just know too much more uh, than we knew 15, 20 years ago about uh, the reproductive system and the need for abortion in, in, in some women's cases. Uh, we also know more about access to routine reproductive health care. And I'll tell you, you know, this governor's uh, mission to not only limit access to abortion, but to also curb access to routine reproductive health care is having some devastating impacts on women and families all across the state. And so we've got to defend those women. What would you do in terms of specific policies to ensure reproductive health? We know, for instance, here in Iowa, as as well as in many other states, black women face higher rates of maternal death from childbirth. Uh, How do we address that problem, for instance? You know, one one thing is just ensuring that people have access to a health care system that works for them. Right now, we have mothers in more than 60 counties that don't have access to an OBGYN in their county. You know, in light of this governor's failure to, to show up for women, especially as it relates to maternal health, uh, I worked with organizations during the pandemic to increase other options to access the health care with doulas and, and midwives because of the lack of access. I, and I spoke to a mother um, earlier on in that process and working with those women. She was five months pregnant, had insurance 
and had yet to get in to see an OBGYN. And so we've got to increase access to care in the state. We've also got to increase access to birth control um, and other emergency contraceptives over the counter as well. Um, and, and ensuring, the most important part from this vantage point too, is ensuring that we have a paid parental leave program in the state so that when mamas have their babies, they're not afraid that they're going to lose their jobs, um, that they have security and they're able to not only take care of that child, but, but lift up the family in the process. Let's uh, keep in the area of health care, mental health care. Uh, in this case, Governor Reynolds, uh, we know, has uh, led bipartisan efforts, uh, the efforts that created a framework for adult and children's mental health. Yet you say you believe Iowa's mental health system is failing. How is yeah. Iowa's uh, mental health system failing? You know, folks are waiting six and eight months to get care. When a person walks into, or not, probably they're not walking in, but when they get into the doctor's office, emergency room with a gunshot wound in their chest, the doctor isn't saying, you've got to wait six months. The doctor isn't saying, I'm sorry, we don't have a bed right now. The doctor isn't giving or belaboring that person's ability to access care, but unfortunately that's happening with mental health care. And we all know the challenges that Iowans have faced over these last two and a half years. Um, and, and we know the importance of that access to care. But the unfortunate part about it, people are waiting too long. We have less than 30 child psychiatrists in this state. We have more than half a million kids. We have less than 750 mental health care beds in this state, a population of more than 3 million people. Folks are traveling outside of the state to get mental health care. We're moving them to uproot themselves from normalcy and go outside of the state, outside of their comfort zone, in, in the most vulnerable time of their life. We're 45th in the nation in mental health care worker availability. Mm-hmm. Mainline, while we're sitting on more than a uh, yeah. billion dollar surplus, a two, we're sitting on so, more so than you've a outlined, you've outlined, you've outlined the problem. Um, the problem. What's the solution? If should you be governor? Oh, absolutely. We've got to fund the system. We've got to increase our reimbursement rates for mental health so that providers and that business model actually works that providers are interested in coming to the state and, and, and doing work. Not only do we need to increase access um, um, by increasing those reimbursement rates, but we also have to refine our licensure process so that it's streamlined for Iowans who uh, want to do the work in Iowa, but we've also got to create some reciprocity am- amongst the Midwest so folks who are not in the state of Iowa interested in doing this work have um, a pathway to come and do the work in Iowa. I also want to make sure that we're working with law enforcement as well. When we're talking to our our county law enforcement officials, they're telling me that their county jails are becoming mental health care holding facilities. Um, And so it's it's very, very clear that that is not what those facilities were intended for. Um, And so increasing access there is is going to strengthen our ability to not only keep Iowans safe, um, but to ensure Iowans are getting their needs met with, with actually having the pathway to do so. Deidre Desir, the Governor Reynolds, uh, touts the tax cut packages she has signed as governor, um, including legislation this year that will gradually reduce Iowa's income tax to a 3.9% flat rate, also reduce uh, corporate income tax, eliminate the tax on retirement income. She says Iowa has been able to pass tax cuts while increasing investment in areas, uh, she says, education, broadband, and so forth. Um, She's going to continue, she says, to look for more ways to pass uh, tax cuts if the state finds it's uh, over-collecting, in her words, on tax cuts. Outline how your tax policy would be different. I I think I can do it succinctly. 
uh, I'm going to put the Iowa taxpayer dollar to work. These tax cuts are short-sighted. They do not add value to our overall economy. And in the midst of uh, an exorbitant surplus and coming off the end of a pandemic, uh, economic instability, these are the moments where we have to invest in our systems to ensure that we're prepared to weather the next storm. Because another one's going to come, whether it's inflation, whether it's a pandemic, a derecho, whatever that may be, we have to make sure that Iowa taxpayer dollars are going to work because those tax cuts do nothing to resolve okay. the challenges to of be, our education to, crisis. Right, right. To be more specific, uh, in, in the interest of time, which is running out a bit here, to, to, for clarity here, you're in favor of raising taxes? Would you want to change course no. r- change course no. from the plan to gradually reduce Iowa's income tax to that 3.9% flat rate? Would you try to change that course? Yeah, we do need to change course from that 3.9%. Talking to county officials is going to put them in a compromising position as it relates to property taxes. And talking to uh, statewide elected officials, it's going to cause uh, some challenges and possibly having to increase uh, sales taxes across the state. And so I'm of the mindset... Let's deal with uh, that point uh, once we get on the other side. But that 3.9% black tax is going to cause some serious challenges for us in the future. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the economy. Uh, I'm sure you saw the latest GDP report released this morning. The economy, nation's economy expanding at an annual rate of 2.6%. Um, inflation continues to eat away at our spending power here in Iowa as well. Also, mortgage rates topping 7% this week, the highest level in 20 years. How would you as governor help to reduce the impact of inflation on Iowans? We've got to be prepared. I started my business during probably the most peculiar time to start a business during the recession. But I did that to help other businesses that were getting started. I wanted them to help. I wanted to help them grow because they were getting laid off from their jobs and couldn't help to become entrepreneurs. And so the work that I have done has always been about preparation, preparing folks for the worst of times, preparing folks for the best of times. And, and we need to make sure, when I talk about putting the taxpayer dollar to work, that we are equipped to weather a storm because it's going to come, right? As a, as a young college student, I endured the Great Recession. You know, fast forward to the pandemic, the derecho, so many other things that were happening in our community. Something else is on the horizon, um, and we should expect it. But at the moment in time it comes, Iowans will be prepared. Yeah, what, would you, what policy specifically would you then propose to that end? So we have to invest in our schools. We have to invest in child care. You know, we have to invest in all of these infrastructures that we're not fully invested in. And, and as we're trying to overcome a challenge and deal with, with where we are in these moments, especially over these last couple of years, we were ill-equipped. And so I'm about preparation and, and ensuring that, you know, islands are equipped, again, to, to weather whatever storm or crisis is ahead of us. And, and, and when, when you ask for what policies those are, it's funding education. You know, it's funding mental health care. These are all things that people needed fully funded, you know, over the course of these last two years. And and because of the lack of investment, we were not fully able to weather the storm in a way in which we could have. Deidre Dejir, the the governor is leading you, according to polls, the latest poll by double digits. How are you trying to close the gap leading up to Election Day? And, of course, early voting has been going on for some time here. Yeah, we're doing what we've always done, which is meeting people where they are. We're traveling all across the state, engaging voters, bringing on new volunteers, encouraging them to engage voters across their communities as well. This is a campaign that is centered around people. Uh, We're putting people first every step of the way. And so 
we're committed. We, we're proud that we've gotten more than 38,000 contributions in the door. Um, it's a signal that this is a grassroots effort, average contribution about $37, $38. And so we're traveling. We're committed to meeting people where they are, and that's how you close these types of gaps. If you think about it, uh, this is a, a turnout type of election, and we need people to turn out. So that's the path that we're taking. Mm-hmm. A couple of former candidates for governor, both older white men, have been holding events aimed at talking about how to revitalize the Iowa Democratic Party. What do you, Deidre DeGier, see as the future of the Iowa Democratic Party? For instance, who should be leading the conversations about where that future lies? You're watching the future happen right before your eyes with uh, a number of people running for office that had never run before, folks who are engaging in their communities in unique ways. You're seeing folks within the Iowa Democratic Party take ownership of their communities um, by running. And so I think we're off to uh, a great path, and this isn't new to us. We, We started seeing it back in 2016, but more specifically in 2018. You have three women running for Congress uh, in the state of Iowa on the Democratic ticket. That's a really big deal, you know, and and so I'm excited about what this future looks like. I don't know that there's one spokesperson. You know, that was a model that perhaps worked in the past. But what I can tell you is that collectively working together is, is our recipe. And when we do that well, we perform not only as a party, but we perform better as Iowans. Mm -hmm. What have you most enjoyed, most learned from this campaign? Very quickly. You know, I, I, enjoy, I enjoy hearing Iowan stories. But uh, while, you know, at campaign events, people often want to talk about the challenges. I like to hear them talk about the good because there is so much good that exists in our state. And it is in acknowledging that good that helps us overcome the challenges. We are not that far gone. We've got vision in this state. I hear from Iowans all over. We just need leadership willing to turn the lights on. Thank you very much for your time and uh, your views. Deidre DeGier, Democratic candidate for governor for Iowa. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. River to River, today produced by Sam McIntosh and Danny Gere. Our executive producer is Catherine Perkins. It's a News Buzz edition tomorrow on our program. We hope you'll tune in. I'm Ben Kiefer. Take care. Until then.